Hey, everybody. So glad to get uh, back here to church. Um, always good to be back in the United States. Uh, when I was with you a couple weeks ago, I told you I was heading directly to Guatemala, if you remember, to join up. I was literally leaving from the stage to join up with our week one team, which was on the ground in a remote part of Guatemala called Chiquimula. And there, our teams over the last two weeks, in fact, our, our plane that with carrying our team, week two team, just landed a couple hours ago. Um, they were, uh, over those weeks, doing medical clinics and vision clinics, and we built a nutrition center. Now, that was my plan. I was going to pick up last week and run and meet up with the team. But if you know me, and some of you do, uh, me and travel plans don't mix well, usually. So I literally left from the stage, I jumped in the car, went to the airport, got dropped off, and I sat for a couple hours because my connecting flight, turns out, to Washington, D.C. was delayed. And so I waited, and they kept pushing it back and pushing it back, and then finally they said, okay, great, it's time to board the flight. And as I was standing in line, I was literally the next person in line. They showed how much time I would have for my connection, and it was 15 minutes. And, uh, I'm going, I'm not going to make that flight. I just know I'm not going to make that flight. I'm going to get stuck in D.C. And I was talking to them, will you give me a hotel? They're like, well, we can't tell you until you get to D.C. And I'm like, well, you know. So I jump out of the line. I call home. Um, my son comes and picks me up at the airport, back to the house, fall asleep at the house, get up early the next morning, back to the airport, where now I fly to Houston instead of Washington, D.C. to make my connection. After spending lots of $20 per hamburger at the airport, right, I get to Houston, where I get to my connecting gate, and guess what? Flight's delayed again, right? So I buy another $20 hamburger there in Houston, and eventually I make my way to Guatemala, where I get to my room around 10 o'clock the next night, and um, Mandy, some of you know Mandy um, in Guatemala, Mandy looks at me and goes, oh, by the way, a um, couple things. Number one, Pedro is going to be taking you tomorrow morning um, to, to Chiquimula. It's about a three-hour drive. I said, great. She goes, here's the thing. Pedro can't really see to drive. And so I'm like, well, this makes perfect sense. So he's the one you're sending, right? And she goes, no, he's bringing his brother-in-law. But he doesn't speak any English. But just so you know, like, that's who's driving you. I said, great. What time are they going to be here? 5 a.m. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I set my alarm for 4. I get up. I literally put my shirt on inside out because it was so dark and I was so tired and nobody had the guts to tell me until Laura from Powder's house like six hours later, John, your shirt's on inside out. And so I get up there and um, uh, I, I, we start driving to Chiquimula, right? Um, uh, we, I just want to pick up my story. It, it had been raining in um, Guatemala for a couple weeks. And so what was supposed to be a three-hour trip, kind of like Gilligan's three-hour tour it turned into, the bridge to Chiquimula, because of all the rain, had been washed away. No problem. You know, the industrious Guatemalan government had put up a new bridge, which I was excited to hear until Pedro told me that bridge also has washed away. So I said, well, what's, what's the plan, right? And he said, the plan depends on how strong the currents are in the river. True, true story. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He said, um, so what we do is now we have to drive through the river, but it depends on how high the water is if we can make it through or not, and we don't really know until you get there. So I'm like, all right. So we start driving, right? Um, and we get to the river. Make a very long story short. Uh, I, once we got to, the problem with the river crossing is only one car can go across at one time, and that's one car despite directions. So 
the traffic was backed up at the river crossing for hours in each direction. We literally sat at the river crossing for at least two hours just with the car shut off. To make a long story short, I finally arrived in Chikimula 50 hours after I left here that Sunday morning. And when I got there, many of you know Drew Schoemacher. He, he's one of, one of our people here at Mendham. You know, Drew's a very understanding human, if you know Drew. And Drew immediately chided me for being so late and handed me a shovel and told me to get to work. And that was how my week in Chikimula began. Now, over the last couple of weeks of these trips, uh, we started asking the volunteers to do something that Jesus prescribes for his followers. And that is, I said to them, I want you every day to walk out and I want you to ask God to show you to do three things. To give you eyes to see, to give you ears that hear, and most importantly, now that you're seeing and you're hearing, to have a heart that understands. And so this morning, I want to share with you what I saw and what I heard and how I've come to understand it. And how all of that relates to the most two powerful words in the scripture, but God. As I sat waiting for that couple hours to cross the river, right, my Guatemalan version of the Red Sea, in effect, into the promised land of Chiquimula, that story of God's people began to play in my mind, right? Many of you know the story. Led by Moses, God takes, takes ancient Israel out of their slavery in Egypt uh, and brings them into the promised land. He goes to Pharaoh, he demands the Israelites release after 400 years in captivity. And eventually, following plague after plague, Pharaoh relents and he lets them go. If you know the story, they head out new and free and excited, only to be halted, kind of like me going to Chikimula, only to be halted at the Red Sea with the armies of Egypt hot on their tails. Most of you know, God parts the Red Sea just long enough to, to let them cross and then closes it over the armies of Egypt. And at that point, the Israelites, I don't know how many of you know this, when God lets them cross the Red Sea, you know they're only 200 miles from the Promised Land? That's it. Like it wasn't going to be a long trip, it was going to be a simple journey. In fact, God had given Israel just a two-point plan. He said, I'm going to bring them out of that land, and I'm going to bring them to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Out of one land to another, how long could this take? 200 miles, it's going to be a couple of weeks. That is, to, to you read the story and you understand that as Israel was being guided by God to this promised land, <coughs> God pro promises to guide them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Guess where the cloud goes? The wrong way. Doesn't start going in the right direction. Instead of making a beeline for the promised land, God intentionally takes his people into the desert to what would turn into for them, these people that loved God, 40 years of wandering. Now, the scriptures reveal that God has a good reason for it. The people didn't understand it at the time. But what God knew is that if he took the direct route, that the people would face the opposition of the Philistines, kind of the eternal enemy of God's people, and, and they, they would get scared. And, and as soon as they faced the Philistines, they would want to turn back and run back to Egypt and, and their slavery. Instead, God takes them on what the Bible actually calls, oh, wow. See that? That's proactive. Although in the world we live in, I always get scared when people rush the stage, so. <laughs> So, um, i got to find my place now. Um, 
So God takes them, as the scriptures say, he doesn't take them a direct way. He takes them on the roundabout way, and he takes them to the desert. And the question that faced the Israelites that day and those days is the same question that faces you and I in these days. Will the people of God then and the people of God today, will they follow God even when he, they don't understand where he's leading them? When he seems to be taking them the wrong way? Will they follow him when he, when he doesn't seem to be making any sense? Will they stay faithful on the roundabout journey? Now, I have to be honest, for me, this was a difficult uh, question as I reflected on it, especially as I sat with, in the heat with the car turned off. And my delay was 40 hours. For Israel, that roundabout way was going to turn into 40 years. A long obedience, as some have called it, in the same direction. And some of you might know this, 40 is actually a really significant number in the Bible. Scholars will tell you it has several meanings. One is that it marks what, what they would call a biblically significant amount of time in terms of existence or endurance. King David and King Solomon, they reigned for 40 years. For, 40 days marked the time that Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. And the period between Jesus' resurrection and when he ascends into heaven, 40 days. But as author John Warburg points out in, in a brilliant book called Life-Changing Love, the number 40 is also always associated with the desert. Some of you know the backstory of Moses. When Moses killed an Egyptian to protect an Israelite and he fled from Pharaoh, he runs into the desert where he stays for 40 years. When the prophet Elijah ran in fear from Jezebel, He's led into the wilderness on a journey of 40 days and 40 nights. Many of you know the story of Jesus. When he begins his ministry, where does the Spirit call Jesus? Into the desert. How long is he in the desert? 40 days. Now you might be thinking, what does any of this have to do with but God? Here's the deal. The very first time, and it's, this comes up, I'm I told you a couple weeks ago, we're up over 30 plus times in the scriptures where God des describes, the scriptures describe a scenario and then comes but God. The very first time but God is used has to do with this concept of the desert. These very powerful life-changing words that occur, the first time they occur, they occur with Noah and the flood. Let me explain. Here's how the scriptures say it went down. For 40 days, there it is again, the flood kept coming on earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. In fact, even after the ark comes to rest, here's what Moses writes. He says, after 40 days... Noah opened a window he had made in the ark. Now, I want you to enter this story, right? We, we often see it as a children's story, but, but the, the scriptures, Jesus would refer back to it as a historical event. There may have been water everywhere, but in terms of what Noah was going through and experiencing is desert. Think about it. He had to be terrified. Uh, other than his family, he's the only living person on the face of the earth. And he has no understanding of the way forward or what God is up to. I mean, you can be in the desert even when you're surrounded by water. Biblical example after biblical example shows this concept. The desert is this place where given your own will, you would never go. You would take the straight, the straight road. 
It's not the promised land. It's, it's dry and it's barren. Life is hard in the desert. It's kind of bleak there. Oftentimes there's not a lot of hope. It's scary. And here's the truth. Many of you know this. And this is, this is going to be so important for if you're a new believer or if you're a long-term believer. If you're serious in your pursuit of God, and, and I think if you're just living your life with your eyes open, you're going to eventually wind up in the desert. I'm just telling you. I read it described this way. You'll know times when your heart aches with hurt or loss. Times when you're fatigued and even sleep doesn't refresh you. Times where you long for a good thing, when, you're, when your motives seem pure, when it seems like God could so easily answer your prayer, and yet he doesn't. Times when life hardly seems like it's worth the effort. Now, how, how do you wind up there? Every saint winds up here at some point. How do you wind up there? Well, I mean, here's one hard truth. Oftentimes, it's, it's of our own making. We lead ourselves there. We make bad decision after bad decision, right? We, we, we often can be our worst enemies. We know what we should do. We know what God would want us to do. We know the right way, and we know the truth. It's, it's clear, but our flesh and our hearts and our desires, we give in to them, and, and instead of following God, well, we wind up in this desert of our own choosing. Some of you are in that this morning. And at other times, it's just the bad decisions of others that wind up putting us in the desert. Have you had that happen? A spouse cheats, a, a relationship shatters, a, a child rebels, a, a job gets lost, a lifelong dream, suddenly it, the realization dawns it's not going to happen. And I mean, those are crushing things. And you just feel so dry and so alone. Almost like you're just dead inside. And so sometimes we do it to ourselves, and sometimes others do it to us. But there's another truth. And if you live long enough, you'll be able to attest to this. I'm telling you, I can. Sometimes, sometimes you wind up in the desert for what just seems to be no reason at all. I read it described this way, and it resonated with my heart. Quote, in these times, even faith is hard. You pray, you pour out your, your heart to God, but the, there doesn't seem to be anything coming back from God. There's, there's no sense of nearness or response. The Bible isn't, isn't a comfort to you. you. You're confused, you wonder why, but you receive no answers. It, it, it's your, your spirit, your soul, you just feel dry and barren. You're not just in the desert. It's like the desert has somehow made its way into you. In the desert, we all have to cling, all we have to cling to is a promise that God hasn't forgotten you. You've not been abandoned. He leads his children in roundabout ways. See, here's the thing about God. He's not in a hurry. God is at work in the roundabout way of the desert, in ways we do not see, in ways like the Israelites, in ways that they could not understand. And God's way is rarely the quick route. It's seldom the easy way. It's always the best way. In fact, in faith, desert times are not a sign. This is what I want you to hear if you're in one. Desert times are not a sign of immaturity. Quite the opposite. I'm going to show you this. They are the story of every serious saint. In fact, I would argue if you've never experienced them, you should wonder. Now, I don't know what your experience is in following Jesus, but I could tell you mine. In the beginning, I came to know Christ when I was 18 years old, and it was a joy ride. I mean, I was on fire for God, almost a little bit obnoxious. 
uh, I, when I came to understand who Jesus was, that he was exactly who he claimed to be, the way, the truth, and the life, I was all fired up, man. I couldn't wait to know more. My friends all thought, thought I was weird. My mother thought I joined a cult. I'd sit around at night and I'd listen to the radio with a notebook and I, I, I'd, I'd write down what all the things I was, I was learning on Christian radio. I wanted to spend more time, in, not just in Bible, but in prayer and with God's people. I couldn't get enough of church. I was, I was just so filled up and fired up. And that lasted a long time. But here's something that almost every long-term follower of Jesus tell, will tell you. For every one of us, there comes what has been known over time. Mother Teresa talked about this. John of the Cross talked about this. The dark night of the soul. See, in our mind, our walk with Jesus kind of on a graph is always going to be up and to the right, up and to the right, but it's not. Here's how Ortberg described it. He said, for most of us, somewhere along the line, things change. What was once easy and simple and enjoyable, well, it begins to become laborious and a little draining. You find yourself now not wanting to pray. You, you pray less often, and when you do, you, you miss the old sense of excitement. It, it's difficult to sense God's presence. The, the Bible starts to feel dull. You find yourself troubled with some doubts or confusion. Temptations that you thought you'd overcome begin to look good again. Sometimes when you're in worship, other people are deeply moved to tears, maybe. But for you, the tears don't seem to come, and you begin to wonder, what happened? Where is God? Why, why is he allowing this to happen to me? Why can't it be like it was in the beginning? Why the roundabout way? Well, here's perhaps why. As he wrote a parable that may help here, Ortberg said that my first, um, my first real bike was a red English racer. I wanted to learn to ride that bike more than anything in the world. And so one day, my dad took the training wheels off. I wasn't quite ready to solo, and so my dad held the back of the bike with one hand and ran alongside me. I felt like I was a pro. But the truth, of course, was that he was behind me propping me up. I couldn't really ride yet. And then one day, my dad did a strange thing. He let go. That was a dirty trick, I thought, because I fell hard. And he kept letting go, and I kept falling. It got so bad, my mother pulled the curtains closed because she couldn't stand to watch. Apparently, either the bike was lopsided or I was. Dad, how come you can't keep holding on? Because if I do, you'll never learn how, he said. You'll never ride on your own. Do you want to be 25 years old and still have me running behind you holding up your bike? Yes, I said. It sounded preferable <laughs> to what was going on. But in retrospect, I see his wisdom. He hadn't abandoned me. It was a roundabout way of learning to ride a bike. But there was no other way. When first you ride on your own, unsupported, you feel like you're doing worse than ever. You're falling all over the place. But the fact is you're growing. You just don't know it. Pretty good, right? C.S. Lewis wrote of the same thing. He said that in the first days of spiritual life, God gives us freedom from temptation and the desire to pray, and he's making it easy on us. And we're tempted to think, oh, it's all me. Like, I, I am a spiritual giant. But then Lewis goes on to say this, quote, but God never allows that state of affair to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws. If not, in fact, at least from their obvious experience, all those supports and incentives. 
He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have all lost their relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into, this sort, into the sort of creature. See, this is the story of how God grows us. If you feel like you're in the middle of this dry desert patch in your walk with God, please don't feel like it makes you a bad believer. It's part of the way. I'll show it to you again and again. Israel's great King David. Great example. He's anointed king of Israel. And soon, so he's got this high, he's the king of Israel. And soon after, he finds himself a homeless figure living in caves to escape being killed by a hostile king. This wasn't the way it was supposed to go. God is taking David on the roundabout way. Did you know David wrote a psalm during his desert experience? This is in your Bible, okay? Like, if you were going to write the Bible, you would never put this psalm in here. But this is David in his roundabout desert experience. Here's what he said. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long have, do I have to wrestle with my thoughts and, and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long? You ever ask God that? How long, God? I mean, David's in the desert. That's what the cry of someone in the desert sounds like. God, I know all the truth. I just don't feel it. God, are you there? I don't hear you. Have you forgotten about me? And if you're there today, or when you get there, because you will, there are these two words, two very powerful words that you must cling to to get you through. Because the desert, friends, the desert is a dangerous place. It's a place of great temptation. That's why the Spirit led Jesus there. It was for Jesus a place of temptation, and it will be for you. In these days of dryness and isolation, the desert, okay, listen now, the desert is often where you reach out to the wrong person or for the wrong thing to fill up your soul again. The desert's often the place of bad decisions. But if you remember the two-word promise of God, you can make your way through those two words, and I'll show them to you over and over again, but God. Now, the first time they're used in the scripture, it's after Noah's 40 days. The waters flooded the earth for five months. Five months! The next words, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. But God is the promise and hope of every saint who will eventually find himself in the desert through all of time. Over and over, you will see in the scriptures the same words. But God remembered. But God remembered. And in each passage where the scriptures say that God remembered, you see that the phrase is followed by some sort of action. It's not just like, oh, but God remembered because, you know, he's warm and fuzzy. No, it's always, but God remembered, and then some work of God on his people's behalf. 
when God remembered Noah and his family floating in the ark, quote, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. But God remembered and God acted. The Israelites in their captivity, crying out to God in Egypt, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. And what does God do? In the very next words of the story, he sets in motion his plan with Moses. Friends, I don't know what you feel like, but if you follow Jesus long enough, there's going to be a time where you're going to think, I wonder if he forgot about me. But it's the complete opposite. In everything you might be facing in the desert, you write in what your pain and loss and isolation and dryness is. And some of you have heartbreaking stories. That's the truth. But I can promise you this. God has not forgotten you. In fact, God knows that, the, that in this world, his children are going to have this feeling, and God never dismisses it. He does not blot out Psalm 13 and, and say to David, hey, don't, don't, don't write that, delete that. It didn't get edited out. How about John the Baptist? John the Baptist thought God had forgotten him. Some of you know the story. John's arrested for testifying about Jesus, right? Preparing the way for the Lord. In fact, John knows he's about to have his head lopped off for it. But his followers keep coming to John in prison and telling about all the wonderful miracles that Jesus is doing for others. Can you imagine? Maybe that's happened to you. Your life is following up, falling apart, and you go to church, and all the preacher keeps telling you about is all the wonderful things that God is doing for everybody else. And so John is hearing all of this. And, and, and John, John has a profound question that you might have too. He, he calls his followers again, and he goes, I want you to go back to Jesus, and I want you to ask him one question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we be expecting someone else? Because this isn't playing out well for me right now. Jesus, it appears you've forgotten about me. It's John. You know, Jesus, don't you remember all the baptisms in the water and everything? It's me. I wonder, I mean, have I been forsaken? In fact, in fact, God knows this feeling that you have or will have so very personally, his only begotten son crucified for our sins in yet a second desert experience cries out to his heavenly father from the cross. It was about three in the afternoon and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemasabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of the human heart. Jesus, fully God and fully human. So friends, if David could cry this, and John could cry it, and Jesus could ask the question, there is no shame in you asking it. And that's why in the scriptures, God addresses it head on. This is so amazing. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, God has been making, you could go read this, this is in chapter 49. God is making promise after incredible promise to the nation of Israel. I mean, they're overwhelming the glory of the promises that he's making to these people. All of the things that God has done and will do for them. 
In fact, God concludes the promises with this. He says, shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you fountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Oh, they knew the truth. And yet, to prove to you and I that it is possible to be aware of all of the promises of God and all the truth of his love, do you know what Israel's response to God was in light of all of that? Israel, he, God allows Israel to interrupt God's party. And here's what Israel says to him. But Zion, Israel, said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. I know the truth. I believe in the promises. I understand the future, but right now, right now, my husband's gone. The doctor just called. My kid is hooked on heroin. Right now, I think you forgot about me. I, I don't feel loved. That is the same cry of David and John and Jesus, and it, it might be the most profoundly, and what might be the most profoundly beautiful response of all time. Here is what God says to Israel. No, he doesn't do what I would do, which is lecture them. How could you possibly say such a thing to me after all I've done for you? No. He doesn't say to Israel, just suck it up, cupcake. Here's what God says to every person that's ever been felt forgotten. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. And don't rush by this. God is comparing himself to a nursing mother to, for all of those who feel forgotten. It's profoundly powerful for a bunch of reasons. The first of which is, don't rush by this, this is God actually using female imagery to describe himself. To describe himself. Because men and women, men and women are made in the image of God. But see, here's the thing that resonated with me as I studied it this week. I have a three-month-old granddaughter and I am actually seeing every day the power of this image. My daughter, Courtney, poor Courtney, I'm in here talking about her breastfeeding, but this is what happens when you're the pastor's daughter. <laughs> it is impossible for my daughter, Courtney, to forget about little Landry in several ways. One of them is physically. My daughter, right, if my daughter is not nursing Landry, her body reminds her with great regularity that she needs to be with Landry. A nursing mother can't forget about her child because as I understand it, remember, I'm a guy talking about nursing, but her prolactins won't let her forget about her child. Her milk comes in and she becomes quite uncomfortable unless she's with her child and feeds her child. She is literally, now listen to this, this is what God is saying about you to everybody that feels forgotten. She is literally physically drawn by her very nature to the child. Don't you understand that God is saying, it is in my very nature not to reject you. In fact, it's in my very nature to be drawn to you. 
And then, then there are her emotions. When a mother nurses her child, it releases within her mind, her brain, oxytocin. It's a chemical that makes her feel delight and joy and contentment at the mere sight of the child. God is saying, forget you. Forget you? Not only can I not forget you because my nature drives me to you, the mere sight and thought of you releases within me joy and excitement and delight. Forget you, his eyes are literally fixed on you. And then, of course, beyond a mother's physical and emotional ties to the child, here's one thing I've watched with Courtney, especially in these early weeks. To be a nursing mother is to be involved in the most dysfunctional relationship of all time. It is a one-way highway. All Courtney does 24 hours a day is give, give, give. And all Landry does is take, take, take. Poop. Take, take, take. That's it. And here's the weird part. Courtney bears no ill will. Her love is truly unconditional. She doesn't sleep. And the baby doesn't care. The baby doesn't give her any reward. The baby is less than grateful. In fact, it's been so fun because as Landry started to smile, it's like after all of this work that her and Ryan have put in all, uh, over these three months, that kid smiles and it's like, oh, it was all worth it just for her smile. Don't you see that's how God feels about you? It's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And those are beautiful words, but almost as if it was too little to just use words to describe his love for people who feel forgotten, for people who find themselves in desert places, God goes further. And in just incredibly messianic, um, prophetic ways, he says something to all of us in the desert that is absolutely breathtaking. He says to everybody who feels forgotten, he goes, you see... I've engraved your name on the palm of my hands. Which at first, and probably the original audience, it, it, it must have seemed like a beautiful metaphor. In ancient times, oftentimes a servant would have his master's name tattooed on him to show ownership. But here, God the master is saying something which at first, it appears quite beautiful. He's saying, I'm unlike other masters. I, I have placed your name on me. I've written it on me. But then, Tim Keller points this out so beautifully. The metaphor takes, when you understand it in the original language, quite an ugly turn. Because the wording in Hebrew is, is not tattooed or marked. The wording here, which is translated engraved, actually means to be carved out with a hammer or a chisel or a spike. In a very real way, the metaphor moves from beauty to beastly. Why would anyone out of love allow somebody to drive a spike into their hands with a hammer? And yet some centuries later, Jesus would hold up his hands to his disciple Thomas, who amongst all of his friends found himself in a desert of disbelief. And he would say, Thomas, in the midst of all of your circumstances, in the midst of all of the reasons that you shouldn't believe, in the midst of all the reasons you have to distrust and to doubt and disbelieve, Thomas, look at my hands. And to every one of us in these desert experiences, God says to us, 
I love you like a nursing mother. My nature draws me to you. My emotions have me singing with pleasure over just your smile. And all you do is take and take and take, and yet, and yet, you melt my heart. And if my words aren't enough, let me just show you how much I love you. And so I want to close with two very real stories about but God moments in the midst of deserts. The hope these engraved hands actually provide to very real people. One was a story that Orper told in his book, and the other I actually saw played out when I was in Guatemala last week. Orper wrote of a, a woman named Sandy. I'm just going to read this to you. Sandy's life had been a pleasant path. She was raised in her faith. Her grandfather was the pastor of the church where she grew up. She graduated from a Christian college, began to work as a pediatric nurse, and married a fine Christian young man. Four years later, two months pregnant with her first child, her husband told her that he felt trapped and wasn't sure he was ready for parenthood. Two months later, she became quite ill. And while she was staying at her sister's, he left. Sandy didn't know it, but she had stepped onto the roundabout way. She kept praying for her husband, certain that he would return like the prodigal son, but she found out that her husband had been unfaithful. Not only that, but he had contracted a sexually transmitted disease, and when the baby was born, her father's gift to her was the disease that he had passed on. At the moment of delivery, her baby was silent, and when she should have cried, she was blue and limp when she should have been pink and wriggling. Rachel was born anencephalic, with only a brainstem to carry out the most basic functions. So the doctors said she would live only a matter of days or weeks, but, but the weeks became months, and the months became years. Sandy's whole life was, was consumed with working 12-hour shifts while her sister or a friend were was with the baby, and she would spend the rest of her time caring for Rachel. Her desert way was paved with none of the dreams parents usually have for their children. Sandy would never videotape Rachel toddling off to her first day of school. There would be no report cards, no homemade valentines, no baking cookies together, no driver's license test, no walk down the aisle. Sandy would never see her daughter take her first step, never feel chubby little fingers grasp her hand, never hear her laugh or say the phrase, I love you, or even the syllables, mommy. Sandy could never even tell if Rachel knew who her mother was. The only time Rachel seemed to respond to anything at all was times during baths. Sandy would wash and rub her back, and Rachel would sometimes make a, a low cooing sound as if she were content. One day, Sandy decided to take a vacation, her first in three years. It'd be the first day she'd been separate from Rachel since she was born. And so when Sandy called from her hotel, her sister held the phone up to Rachel's ear and, and then told Sandy that Rachel had cooed at the sound of her voice. It was the only indication that Sandy ever had that perhaps her daughter knew her. When she landed at the airport, her brother-in-law met her with the words that somehow she knew were coming. Rachel had died. Rachel's, Rachel's father never came to the funeral and never asked about his daughter. Never said, I'm sorry. It wasn't until six years later that Sandy could read the journals she kept during Rachel's life. Most of them were questions asking why. 
There were no answers then, Sandy said, and I have none now. It's a, it's a dark road, this roundabout way. And yet, you ask Sandy if she prefer that Rachel had never been born, and she would tell you that that is unthinkable. She speaks of experiencing a communion while holding the baby that was deeper than words can say. She speaks of learning what it means to love beyond all limitations and imperfections, to see right down into the spirit and love that. She has no regrets about bringing Rachel home and lavishing love on her. She speaks of choosing forgiveness. She had to forgive a, a husband who never asked for forgiveness, never seemed to want it, certainly didn't deserve it. She had to forgive him because the alternative was life in the prison of resentment. She had to forgive herself for the bitterness and the darkness and the limitations and the choices that she wished she could have back. And in a strange way, she had to do something like forgive God for not answering honest prayers, for not protecting Rachel. But here's what we know. Here's what our hope is, that those nail-pierced hands on a now-living Savior, just like for Jesus on the cross in the moment of his forsakenness, just like for John in his prison cell and for David in the desert and Noah on the boat, Rachel's story is not over. God has not forgotten her. Christian hope, but God hope, says that what happened to Sandy is not a catastrophe. It's not, excuse me, Rachel, or, and Sandy. It's not merely some human faulty genetic accident, a bit of bad DNA which consigned Rachel to a brief, meaningless accident in the cosmic scheme of things. But God hope says that what happened to Sandy and Rachel is part of a story. And it's a tragic story so far, but tragedy is not the whole of it. But God hopes is that one day Sandy and Rachel will be seated at a table where they will know each other and be fully known. And the words of wonder and gratitude and love that Rachel could not speak here will flow ceaselessly there. And the limbs that hung limp and useless in this world will define grace and beauty in that one. The mind that was cheated here will flourish in endless creativity and sparkling intelligence. But God, hope, says the one who does reconstructive surgery is not finished yet. And the day will come when a short-lived, little-noticed rag doll in the world will dazzle through the ages with a glory that we cannot now imagine or comprehend. But God. You see, when God remembers us in our desert places, he always moves. Sometimes miraculously, like he did for Noah. Other times he moves through the raising up and sending of others, like he did for the Israelites when, when God heard their prayer and he raised up Moses. Last week, in the midst of desperate poverty in Chikimula, where the average family lives on $1.90 a day, I think they said the malnutrition rate amongst children is in the 80 percentage points. I was sitting with some friends that were on the trip for the first time, and they were looking at me because I'm the God guy, and they're going, can you explain how God lets this happen? Because this is terrible. In the midst of that, with that question facing me, I, I saw another but God moment. We built a nutrition center, and we have the picture of the nutrition center. This, this was it. This was nothing. You, you all funded this and, and, and the dozens of workers we brought down there. In the midst of an area where 90%, near, nearly 90% of the children don't have nutrition, 
But God showed up in the form of a bunch of gringos and built a place that will feed with, with both physical and spiritual food children for generations. And we had a profound dedication of that building. You can actually watch it on our Facebook page. It was amazing. But there was another clinic that went on. We had a medical clinic one week, and, and the week I was there, they, we had a vision clinic. And, and so we were handing out glasses. There's this new technology that allows us to give glasses. We can diagnose an eye problem and give glasses right on the site. And so um, there was a young girl that showed up. She was 28 years old. She, she, didn't, she seemed much younger. And her name was Stephanie Hernandez. And Stephanie came into the vision clinic, and she, through her mother, explained to us that she had been... Um, they didn't explain why, but something had happened when she was 11 months old and she had gone cross-eyed. And it was, I mean, very obvious when you saw her. And her mother and Stephanie both shared that, uh, that this had made life very difficult for her. She was essentially blind. The only thing she could see is if you held something right up to her face, she could make it out. But otherwise, she couldn't see anything. In fact, her mother had led her into the clinic because she couldn't see. And so um, through the use of, of, you know, some of the stuff that we had with us, they tested her eyes and they figured out um, that a prescription would work for her. And right on the spot, they made her a set of glasses and they put it on Stephanie Hernandez. And at 28 years old, I wasn't there. Brian was there. A couple others were there. Um, she just, she screamed and began to cry for 15 minutes. And her mother came running in. And her mother hugged her, and then everybody in the place started to, to cry. Because she had never seen in her whole life. But God had a few gringos show up one day with a package of eyeglasses. And literally in the middle of the Guatemalan desert, she was given eyes that see. Please understand, but God moments aren't just for you. Sometimes, but God moments are for others. And he uses people like Moses. And he uses people like you. To tell people like, like her. God's not done with you yet. I don't know what you're personally facing this morning. I hope you'll believe in that promise. But God is not through with you yet. He's like a nursing mother the way he feels towards you. And I hope when you leave this morning... I'm going to show you, we're going to close with this little video of um, what happened last week. I hope you will sense a call to this place. Because God is not done with you, and he's not done with them. And the miracles are waiting to happen. You just need to step into them. Check this out.